Hello and welcome to another episode of Unknown Christian Soldiers. I believe this is episode 13. We're going to get into some things today, book reviews, obviously our Unknown Christian Soldier for the episode, uh, some news, explore the Bible, continue in Ephesians. Uh, so let's go and get started off with a prayer today. Father God, thank you for this chance to get together here. Thank you for the chance to do this podcast. Allow myself to say the words you want me to say, not what I want to say. And Father God, I pray right now that those listening will be blessed by this as much as I am. Be with us as we go through our daily struggles, Father. Help remind us that your Son is the guiding light, that he died for our sins, Father, and he rose again so that we could be saved. In the name of your Son, we pray. Amen. <clears throat> All right. So let's lead right off with some news. Most of us have heard here in America... If you're listening here from the U.S., um, that our Supreme Court somewhat overturned Roe v. Wade. I know there's a lot of misinformation about it, but essentially what happened is they took it from a federal matter or a federal jurisdiction and sent it down to the states, which means now the states have the authority to decide whether or not they're going to allow abortions or under what circumstances. So this is a huge victory. Um, uh, there's a there's a big divide even in the church on this. My my personal philosophy is, um, I'm pro life. Now there are certain circumstances such as the life of the mother being in danger. I mean, if the mother dies and the baby dies too, then there was a loss there. It doesn't make sense, you know. So obviously there are circumstances which would make sense for the the medical for it to be a quote unquote actual medical procedure. Uh, versus just you wanting to kill your unborn child because it's, well, quite frankly, because it's inconvenient for you. Um, now, that being said, what's our role as Christians in this? Our role needs to be to help those young mothers that are going to be struggling out there. This is reality. We can't go around saying we're pro-life, 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 and not be willing to support those mothers they're going to have those babies they wouldn't have before so there's a lot of organizations you can give to our church gives to an organization called loving choices you know we donate uh lots of product you know diapers wipes etc uh formula um loving choices even have even has a limited amount of housing the mothers can stay in etc so this is a ministry we've got to get involved in 110%. If you say you are pro-life, you've got to put your money where your mouth is. You have got to be willing to go out there and help support those young mothers who are scared and let them see the love of Christ. Let them see that, that, that giving life to that child that they weren't going to or didn't want to is worth it, that it means something. You've got to be willing to do that. You've got to be willing to go out there and say, yes, I'm pro-life, and yes, I'm going to back you up. So I, that's my point on that. So think about that. Pray about that. Uh, that's something you discuss with your, your spouse, your family. If you're a single person, you know, budget something in there. Budget some uh, finances in there to help these young mothers out, these young families too. You know, it might be a mother and a father together there with this child, and Maybe they're barely making ends meet. They don't know what they're going to do. 
So this is something you need to be in prayer about. Uh, have this on the front of your mind and be thinking how you're going to be able and willing to help with that. All right. Um, something I've been hesitant to talk about. I've been wanting to be hesitant to talk about, but it's just, it's getting so prevalent. And I don't know if this is something that's more new or if this is something that has always been there, but it's just not coming to light. So, here it is. There are there are a lot of abuse cases and abuse allegations coming out of different denominations in the church. Now, I am Southern Baptist, and when the Southern Baptist came out that they were having issues with this in the church, that hit me. Now, this especially hit me here because um, recent surveys and recent polls of pastors showed that most denominations do not even believe or live a biblical lifestyle or a biblical worldview from the pulpit, from the pastors. Um, many denominations question the authenticity of the Bible. Many, we're talking pastors, we're talking priests, we're talking all your lay leaders. We're talking these people stated that they're leaders in the church and yet they question the Bible, question having a biblical worldview and question whether or not it's something they truly believe in. So that being said, the denomination that was most true to the Bible and a biblical worldview was the Southern Baptist Convention. The churches are Southern Baptist. 78% of them said they believed in and followed a biblical worldview and believed biblical scripture to be the true inerrant word of God. So, when the Southern Baptist Convention and the Southern Baptist churches are having problems with this, you know it's a problem everywhere else, too. Uh, where did we get here? How did this happen? Well, first of all, it's a product of a fallen world. I'm not making excuses, but in this world, in this society that we live in, which has turned its back on God and turned away from Christ as our Savior, this is what we're going to have. At the end of the day, we're going to see more and more sin. We're going to see more and more issues. We're going to see more and more problems as we get towards the last day. Don't be surprised if we see more of this, not just in the church, but in schools and everywhere else as we've seen in the past as well. People think they can get away with it. Um, and there's a lot of there's a lot of things in society that may help contribute to this, such as the over-sexualization of children in general, over-sexualization over of both men and women on social media. Um, you see a lot of videos, quote-unquote workout videos, where it's half-naked people you know, showing off their bodies. Um, videos on places like YouTube that aren't supposed to have pornography that are basically pornography on there. Um, it's... It, at the end of the day, we're creating a society on social media, on the internet, and in our daily lives that celebrate and are obsessed with sex. Now, I'm a, I'm a male. I'm a human male. I have a beautiful wife that I love very much. But at the same time, though, the ladies, the way they dress out there in public, yes, it can stir up something inside of a man, any man, because we're men. We have lust in our hearts. So we have to guard against that. Things we could do to help. 
with this, to help guard against our hearts being turned, to guard against our eyes being turned. Of course, you know, Jesus, our Savior, said, you know, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Um, of course, this is metaphorical, I believe. I might be wrong. Maybe he really meant for us to pluck our eye. I don't think he did, but maybe I believe it's metaphorical. Um, we need to guard against that, okay? Prayer and enforcing biblical standards. Pray about it. Enforce those biblical standards, such as never being alone with a woman of the opposite sex. Um, former Vice President Mike Pence, that was a big thing of his. He didn't have lunch with a woman unless his wife was there. He was never alone in a room with a woman. He didn't spend time alone with women. Um, he guarded his heart and his eyes and his mind because he loved his wife, he loved God, and he enforced a biblical standard there. And that's something we need to do, too. Um, as especially men, but well, I say, especially men, women struggle just as much these days. Um, guard your heart, guard your eyes, uh, never put yourself in a potential situation where you might end up alone with someone, or you might end up with the possibility of something happening. You know, if you're, if you're out with a youth group and everyone's kind of going home and you're down there to the last few people and their folks ain't picked them up yet or they ain't they, they they're old enough to drive and they ain't left yet you need to get them out the door you start calling their parents ask them where they're at you know don't leave yourself in a situation where you could potentially be alone with someone and risk an issue guard your heart guard your mind okay um if you're in a church uh, you're a pastor um associate pastor youth counselor whatever it might be um schedule counseling sessions that you may have because there's going to be times when there will be counseling sessions for individuals in your church. You know, you're going to need to give spiritual counseling, marriage counseling, whatever it might be. Um, there's going to be times you're going to be called upon to give counseling. Make sure you schedule those times when there are other people present. Schedule them at locations where you can't risk something inappropriate happening or being accused of something inappropriate happening. I, I hate to say that, but reality of it is in today's society, people will throw false accusations and false allegations. So you have to make sure that you don't even have the semblance of doing something inappropriate. So again, make sure we're scheduling events and activities where we may have to be alone with someone, you know, such as a counseling session, because there's privacy there. You want to make sure that you do give some privacy in that situation, but make sure you schedule a time where someone's with an earshot, someone's nearby, someone else is in the building. Make sure you have the door open. You know, make sure there isn't any way possible where you could be tempted or there could be false allegations thrown out. That's something that's very important. Um, and just something that I think about, something personal for me, um, is I think we should see more husband and wife teams in youth, in Sunday school, everything. So, this can get tricky, especially if the husband and wife team, um, if they both try to be dominant or if one of them's got ideas, the other one doesn't have. So this is, there has to be some finesse here. There has to be a husband and wife team that can coordinate and work well together. Um, I was in a young adults class years ago. I think I was 18, 19, where there was a husband and wife team and the husband was just a brilliant, he was a doctor, brilliant man. I mean, he absolutely knew the Bible inside and out. Um, very, very brilliant man. Uh, 
His wife was also very smart and very dedicated Christian. They both were. But, you know, he would be making a really great point. He'd be trying to drive something home, and she would just start talking over him and try to do what she needed to do to, to get her point across as well. And it, it made it difficult sometimes, made it hard to be in the class, to be honest with you. Um, so, again, this is a situation where you have to make sure this husband and wife team can work well together. But the benefits of it are this. Um, a, they're watching each other closely. They know why they're a husband and wife team. They know why they're in that situation or in that in that class together is because they're keeping each other safe. They're keeping each other from doing something inappropriate. They're keeping each other from even being tempted to think about that. They're keeping each other, um, I, I guess the best way to put it is they're keeping each other as witnesses for what's going on as well. Again, going back to false allegations, you know, if I'm here with my wife and I know she's never alone with anybody but me and we're both there and anytime there's youth there, when we know nothing's going to happen, we know if anybody throws out an allegation that we're covered as well because we were, in fact, witnesses for each other and they're together. So that is also an idea that I find uh, to be most beneficial. But again, every church, every situation is different. And it takes a really special couple to be in that in that position to both be able to teach the youth groups without stepping on each other or without uh, bringing maybe issues from home into the class as well. So that's something you need to be really aware of as a church if you decide to go that route. Um, now, another issue we have, pastors that weren't actually called to be pastors. Now, this is... Uh, this is something that happens a lot. And in fact, I have another news point we're going to get to in a minute where I'm going to bring this up. Um, potentially, I don't know for sure, but potentially. But if you are not called by God to be a pastor, you don't need to be. Hands down, flat out, 100%. No, I, I think God's calling me, or he might be, or maybe this is what I should do. None of that. If you are not called by God to be a pastor, then you should not be. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. God will open doors for you if that's where he wants you to be. You don't have to force him open. Like I prayed for God to show me how I can be more helpful in the church, how I can be more beneficial to him. And a week later, the associate pastor of our church came to me and said, hey, I nominated you to be on the finance committee because that's where we need you to serve. Would you be okay with that? Absolutely. You know, I've dealt with, I've dealt with budgeting and other things. I won't go into. It. I don't want to reveal jobs I've done. Again, I'm trying to stay as private as I can here. But I've dealt with some things at positions in the past that would lend me to be okay with this. Not saying I'd be great at it, but I'll be okay with it. But I prayed, God, show me how I can serve you and be more beneficial to you. And guess what? Boom. Hey, we need somebody on the finance committee. Cool. I'm there. So again, make sure this is something you're called to do. I know. It's probably mentioned by several pastors as well, but you see this sometimes where guys have failed at everything else. You know, they're they're a Christian, they go to church, they read their Bible, they study the Word of God, they try to walk the path that God wants them to, and they're saved, they have their salvation. But they fail at a lot of jobs. And they say, well, I'm failing at all these jobs because maybe God wants me to go be a pastor, or I, I can't do these other things, or maybe this is what I want to do. 
Well, just because you want to do it or just because you think it's a good idea or just because you think it's an awesome position to have doesn't mean that's what God is calling you to do. God knows our strengths and our weaknesses. God knows those who he wants to put in these positions. God will take people you wouldn't think could do it and do it. God will take a man like Saul of Tarsus who was murdering Christians, murdering them, and make him probably his most powerful of all of his apostles, most powerful of all his disciples, endured things, unbelievable things, and still kept faithful to God's word. God will take who he wants to put in that position because he knows. He knows who is going to do it the way he wants to. He knows the person that he has brought up to do it. I guarantee you, Billy Graham, I mean, they prayed in his town, this town where he is from, prayed and prayed and prayed that God would raise up a pastor out of them that would do great things. And God brought Billy Graham. Not someone else, not John Smith, not Joe Johnson, Billy Graham, because that's who God wanted. That's who God knew would do the job right. So again, making sure pastors are called to the pulpit, not because they want to, not because it's something they felt was a good idea, but because they're actually called to do the job. Uh, I'm going to hit one more kind of low point here on the, on the news scale. Uh, just talking about pastors, making sure they are called to be pastors. Now, I'm going to play a video clip here. I'm not even going to introduce it. I'm just going to play the video clip of this pastor here. And then I'm going to talk about it. But I'm going to see what y'all think here. A poor, broke, busted, and disgusted because of how you've been honoring me. I'm not worth your McDonald's money. Come on. Come on. I'm not worth your Red Lobster money. Come on. I ain't worth your St. John Nick. This is a pastor talking to his congregation about how they ain't giving him money. I ain't worth your Prada. I'm not worth your Gucci. Mother, ooh, I'm saying this, and I promise you, Deacon it's not with respect and won't. I'm saying it because I want you to understand just what God is saying. And found out that Movado, you can buy a Movado watch in Sam's. Yes, you can. And y'all know I asked for one last year. Here it is the whole way in August. I still ain't got it. Y'all ain't saying nothing. Let me kick down the door and talk to my cheap sons and daughters. I don't want to hear no more excuses about what y'all can't afford. You can't afford it because you don't see the value here. Y'all hear from y'all pastor and father. I'm over y'all. I'm over your cheap expressions. You realize that, that the Lord wants you to give generously. All right, so... That was a clip of a pastor who um, was upset at his church for not buying him an expensive watch. Now, the pastor did later apologize. He did release a video apologizing for the outburst. But again, that begs the question. Was he called to be a pastor? If that's his attitude, he might've been, he might've just been having a bad, I mean, we all, we are human beings. We have bad moments. Even, even great and godly people have moments where they, they have slip ups or, or look at Peter. You know, I'm, I'm a lot like Peter. I'll put my foot, I'll my mouth, insert foot, put my foot in my mouth all the time. I'll do, do or say dumb stuff. Cause I'm, I'm a little rambunctious sometimes. All right. And that's, that's okay. 
God, God understands and forgives. But you got to ask yourself, if you're a pastor in a church, should you ever let your get ever let yourself get to the point where your your heart allows something like that to come out of your mouth if you're a pastor? Because pastors are judged differently. Remember that. Pastors aren't judged the same way others are. Pastors and teachers are held to a completely different standard. In fact, the Bible, oh, I apologize, I can't remember exactly who said it, but it said that the pray you are never considered a teacher. These teachers are held to a different standard by God for their conduct and what comes out of their mouth. But when we see things like this, do we really have to wonder why the church is being mocked? Don't get me wrong. God is not mocked. God will never be mocked. But the church is being mocked right now. We, the people of the church, are being mocked. Not Jesus. Jesus was mocked and spit on when he was crucified. But I promise you, that was the one and only time. That was the last time that will ever happen to him. But we, as individuals, as people of the church, you wonder why we're mocked? Because we say and do dumb things like that. Not just this pastor, but we as a people say and do dumb things. We do. We have moments. So, again, think about that. Now, some good stuff. Hey, let's talk about something good. India recently had a National Day of Prayer. It was celebrating their like 70 or 75 years of independence, but they also had a National Day of Prayer along with that. Um, and apparently it was a huge success. There's a lot of Christians in India. Um, India is also home to some of the most poor and destitute on the planet, believe it or not. Um, around the cities, of course, there's some a lot of bustling business. Um, but when you get out in those poor farm areas, there are tons, I mean tons of kids who are just dirt poor, no place to live. Homeless. Family. No family. So... Along with India having a National Day of Prayer and the Christians coming together for this, I want to ask that we keep India in our prayers. Keep those who are poor and destitute in our prayers. Keep those who have yet to come to know Christ in our prayers. Now, something that is sweeping the globe, but probably most prevalent here in the United States, is transgenderism. Uh, I don't know if there's much I can say that hasn't already been said a million times by pastors and podcasters and YouTubers and everything else on this particular topic. But it's a real issue with our children right now. Um, it's being taught in schools. There is an individual named Abigail Schreier. I hope I'm saying that right. Um, she's an author and independent journalist. Now she recently gave a speech for Hillsdale, um, about this, about her new book. Her new book is called Irre Irreversible Damage. Um, subtitle of the book is the transgender craze seducing our daughters. Now she has a really good background. Um, she received, uh, this is from her website, she received the Barbara Olson Award for Excellence and Independence in Journalism. Uh, her best-selling book was named 
best book by The Economist and The Times of London. It's been translated into multiple languages. She holds an AB from Columbia College. Uh, she received the Urit J. Kellett Fellowship. She has a Bachelor of Philosophy from the University of Oxford and a Juris Doctorate from Yale Law School. So she is well-educated, and uh, her work has proven itself by the award she's received. So what I would like to do is play a little snippet of her from the speech she gave there at Hillsdale. Uh, since she is, I would consider her to be somewhat of an expert on this subject. Um, here's a little snippet from what she said. Justice. Thank you so much for that very kind introduction. And thank you so much to Hillsdale for having me here today. Um, so social conservatives are increasingly asked to justify why they have decided to target transgender youth as if they picked this issue because it polls well or some other such nonsense. Let me make it clear why this has suddenly become my concern. It is because in America, in 2007, had exactly one gender clinic. One. Anyone care to guess how many we have now? 300. So there are now hundreds of pediatric gender clinics in the U.S. Planned Parenthood gives out testosterone on a first visit. Depending on the state, it absolutely gives testosterone to minors. Planned Parenthood in Oregon gives it to 15-year-old girls on their own recognizance. They don't even need a parental note. Kaiser dispenses it. So for today's teens, whether they have real or typical gender dysphoria or not, testosterone is easily available. Double mastectomy, known as top surgery, is readily available. No, they do not necessarily need parental approval, depending on the state, and they definitely don't need a therapist's note. Okay, so let's let's talk about the transgender phenomenon. I'm going to start. Now, she brings up some valid points, and uh, I'm going to play another segment here that she goes on to say some good things. False. We wouldn't accept this level of glib salesmanship in any other area of medicine. Okay, so those are the kids who actually have gender dysphoria. For the nearly 100 year history uh, of diagnosing gender dysphoria, these little kids were what we were talking about when we, when we talked about gender dysphoria. But in the last decade, that thanks in large part to social media, there's been another population that claims to have gender dysphoria. This is a population that never before had gender dysphoria in any significant numbers. In fact, before 2007, there was no extant scientific literature on their having gender dysphoria at all. Teenage girls. This is the phenomenon Brown University public health researcher, Dr. Lisa Littman called rapid onset gender dysphoria. So, <clears throat> not only are these locations, these different states, these different clinics, et cetera, making this easy, I mean, easy to have done, oftentimes without any parental oversight or consent whatsoever, um, social media in our current society is making it, quote unquote, cool or the cool thing to do. Um, I don't know what to say about this. Um, sudden onset gender dysphoria. 
there are people that have legit gender dysphoria that need counseling. They need help. Um, but this is something that's derived over the course of your entire lifetime. This isn't something that happens all of a sudden. Typically, unless there is some type of, say, uh, brain injury or something like that can cause some damage and cause issues with gender dysphoria. It's, it's rare, but it does happen. Uh, the biggest thing is it's typically something they think there's a chemical imbalance that happens when you're young or possibly even from birth. They're not 100% sure about that from the studies that I've seen. Uh, there may be some new ones that can counter that. But, but those people genuinely do have a gender dysphoria and they need help. Sudden onset means that one day I woke up and I saw it was cool on social media and now I want to go be transgender. You're doing something to your life that oftentimes can't be undone. And so this is something we need to be in prayer about. Again, this is this is the news right here that I've, I've been seeing a lot of lately and I, I wanted to bring this up to the forefront. But these are things we've got to be in prayer about. These are things we've got to be open and talking about. This is a war on our daughters. We have sexualization of our daughters. We have the push for transgenderism, both men and women. This is a society that's talked about in the Bible as having turned from God. Don't think for one second that God isn't going to judge America. In fact, if we aren't in judgment right now, I'd be very surprised. I think we're heading that way if we aren't already. America has become the land of doing stupid stuff. America is becoming the land of turning its back on God. Not all of us. There are a lot of good, solid Christian people here in churches here, too. But there are also a lot of places here that are just turning away from everything that is biblical, every value that we hold dear as Christians. And we need. All right. Now, our scripture reading for this episode will be Mark chapter 12, 29 through 31. It states as follows. Jesus answered him. The first of all the commandments is hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second, like it, is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than this. Again, that was Mark chapter 12, 29 through 31, New King James. Uh, in fact, when we get into actually our uh, our lesson here in a bit, we will break that down a little bit more. Today's Unknown Christian Soldier highlight comes from the book, actually, Killing Christians by Tom Doyle, which is also our book review for this episode. Um, it's a little bit different. The book contains a segment in it contains several segments about several Christians out there who have been martyred or are still in the fight. This section I want to highlight is about Rafia Abar. Now, Rafia was a professor at Imam Islamic University of Riyadh. Hopefully I'm saying that correctly, in Saudi Arabia. Now, she had just been promoted to department chair of the Islamic Studies for Women, specializing in Sharia law for women. Now, I say that to highlight just how dedicated she was to her cause, to what she believed in. 
Uh, that's important because God's going to make a change in her life. Uh, but just to highlight how dedicated she was, I want to read a segment here from the book on page 129. Despite the common involvement, Eddie Mom, well, she also has a student named Mina Kareem, which I'm going to read about here in a moment. And this is the next two things I'm going to read. I'm going to talk about both of them. Despite the common involvement at Imam Islamic University, Rafia and Mina were as different as Mecca and Dubai. Rafia's life goal was to teach the Quran, model the Sunnah, and mold young Muslim women into strict examples of Sharia law in action for other Muslims to see and emulate. You see, Mina was her student, Mina Kareem. Now, Mina struggled. She had more of a party lifestyle. She liked to go out to Dubai and party. And Rafia was more of a strict, staunch Muslim. Uh, but they were brought together. Their paths crossed here at the university where Rafia was teaching her. And this is about Mina. This is a little bit about what her lifestyle is about. Mina hoped one day to live in Dubai, work in the travel industry, and imbibe the good life in every way possible. Islamic standards felt to her like concrete shoes. She had become an expert at making her parents think she was a committed Muslim, or so she thought until they enrolled her at an Imam Islamic University. Perhaps they had begun to suspect that she needed some advanced training. Again, these are two different individuals who are brought together, who God has brought them together. So, Mina was struggling with their classes, and Rafia was pushing her. She was a professor at one of their classes. She was really working with her. Um, or actually, I guess she was more chastising her in class at this point, really trying to push her. Um, but deep down, she knew she had the potential to be a good student. Um, one thing that happened is Rafia laid there one night thinking about Mina and the way she, she could help her become a better student. She fell asleep and she had a dream. That was her first dream of Jesus. She dreamed of Jesus. And the next day, she went and she saw Mina in class. And Mina was struggling, but she was trying. So Rafia decided to tutor her after school. So for the next three months, they worked together intensely. And they grew a bit of a friendship during this time period. And the book gets more into this. I highly encourage you to get the book, Killing Christians. Um, but over the next three months, they, they struck up this friendship. Now, at the end of this three months, the end of the school year, um, Rafia was going to continue her education in Sydney, Australia for one year. She had a grant to do that. So she took a flight to Sydney, her and her daughter did. And while she was on the plane, she met a woman. She met a woman there that would start to send her down a journey that God had intended her to be on. And I'm going to read from the book here. This is her new woman she just met named Emma, who is sitting next to her on the flight. I think most Muslims are misunderstood by other people. I mean, you know, CNN, Fox News, and all that. Rafia started, Rafia, excuse me, Rafia stared at Emma. I've prayed for the Islamic people for years now. Rafia cocked her head and eyed the talkative woman. Why have you prayed for us? 
For several seconds, Emma seemed to measure Rafia's question and then answered, Well, since you asked, I think God is after Muslims, frankly. He is honoring them. I've been hearing a lot about Muslims having dreams about Jesus, and they're not the kind of dreams someone has after a bad plate of boba ganish or something like that. These are high-definition dreams, visions of Jesus, and good-hearted Muslims who have them end up asking Jesus followers what they mean. Isn't that cool? Rafia felt her pulse quicken and quickly nodded as the flight crew's safety instructions cut short the conversation. Noreen, Rafia's daughter, had fallen asleep 10 minutes after takeoff, and for several more minutes, Emma had noticed Rafia staring at the back of the seat in front of her. Suddenly, she turned to Emma. I've been having dreams about Jesus. Emma's eyes widened for six months now. Emma said nothing to Rafia, but prayed silently that the Holy Spirit would give her the right words to say. Just before the silence became awkward, she replied, This is no accident, Rafia. You and I meeting here on this plane, I mean, the Lord Jesus wants you to know more than anything how much he loves you. Rafia became a Christian, and she began to lead others to Christ as well. Um, a year later, she came back to Saudi. I'd like for you to read the book because it goes into great detail about some of the things she endured, but a lot of bad things happen. Um, Rafia endures a lot, including the death of Mina, who had also become a Christian and died for her belief. And I want to read another segment from the book that talks a little bit about that. This is on page, excuse me, 146 in the book. Looking back over her dear life, I see how the Lord brought us together. Until we met Jesus, I didn't realize we had both struggled with emptiness. She had tried to fill hers with wild parties, and I tried with strict religion. We both wanted peace, and we both had come up empty. Still, it troubles me that Mina was so young when her life was taken. Even when her questions and lack of preparation for class made me angry, I could not help but love that girl. Her enthusiasm for living was contagious. Now at 20 years old, she was a martyr for Jesus. It was her great privilege to die for him, and I am honored to have known her, even for a short time. So why am I alive and Mina is with Jesus? The answer is that she and I are both alive. In fact, she is more alive now than ever. This is the greatest lesson I've learned from thinking about her death and the death of any martyrs. Too often, even Christians forget that our faith is not primarily for this life. It is for the life to come. We who are still here are the ones who have been left behind. Our real life has not even begun. But for the martyrs like Mina, it has. Mina endured a lot and died. And Rafia, last I heard, is still out there trying to convert Muslims to Christianity. Um, and she survived a lot. She even survived her own family members trying to kill her. And Jesus himself stopped it. And you can read about that in the book. Um, I encourage you to read it. And I encourage you to pray for her again. Rafia Abar, living in Saudi Arabia last I've heard um, out there in the fight for Christ out there 
winning souls for Christ in a very, very dangerous area, a place that it is absolutely deadly for a woman to utter anything other than Islam. So please keep her in your prayers. And if anyone else has any unknown Christian soldiers out there in the fight, out there trying to bring the gospel to the world, feel free to let us know. Shoot us an email, unknownchristiansoldiers at gmail.com. We'd love to highlight them. For our uh, message on this episode, we're going to be focusing back on that Mark 12, 29 through 31. Um, I want to pray first here. Father God, I know you impressed upon my heart to do this episode today. Um, we're winging it a little bit here, little to no prep time, Father, but that's that's okay because I know as long as I'm doing it for you and through you, that's all that's going to matter. You're going to let me get across what I need to. And I pray that those listening will get out of this what you want them to. Take me out of it, Father. Allow your Holy Spirit to flow through me to deliver the message you want me to, Father. In your Son's name I pray. Amen. All right. Now, we can talk about the Ten Commandments a little bit because that's that was the original standard that God had set down was the Ten Commandments. Of course, none of us can keep the Ten Commandments. And that's something that the Pharisees and Sadducees had a hard time understanding as they continued to add more and more onto that. Um, of course, eventually it got to the point you've seen, you've read some of the Levitical information and some of the things that were talked about in the, uh, the New Testament where Jesus stated that they were all about the law. That's, that's what they were focusing on was the law. They weren't looking to have a true relationship with God. And in some senses, they couldn't because, of course, you had the barrier, that wall there um, of sin. And now Christ came and the veil was torn that led into the Holy of Holies where only the priest could go. You know, the, that veil was torn. Christ became the high priest, the intermediary, the intercessory for our sins. He died for our sins. He rose for our sins. He conquered death, hell, and the grave for our sins, for us, for me, for you, for everyone that will accept his sacrifice. So that the law that we couldn't fulfill, that we could never, ever hope to live a perfect life under, could be overcome through his sacrifice and through our acceptance of that. Um, so the scripture reads... Verses 29 through 31 in chapter 12 of Mark. Jesus answered him. And of course, this is a situation where he's talking to the scribes. Um, the first of about the commandments. He was asked, which is the first commandment of all? Or which is the greatest commandment of all? And Jesus answers in verse 29. Jesus answered him. The first of all commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second like it is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. That puts into perspective. Now, 
Greg Laurie, who's a great pastor, um, in his book, The Greatest Stories Ever Told, the Old Testament volumes one through three, he goes into this a little bit. And uh, I like the way he puts this. If you and I set out to recognize the Ten Commandments, we might list them differently. Or excuse me, if we set out to reorganize the Ten Commandments, we might list them differently. He's referring to the way that they're ordered out and which one might be the first or the greatest. But if you and I set out to reorganize the Ten Commandments, we might list them differently, moving murder or adultery to the top of the list. Surely having another God before him is not as serious as those sins. But for God, breaking commandment number one is the number one offense. In the eyes of heaven, there is nothing worse than putting another God before the true and living one. One day a man came to Jesus and asked him, what is the greatest commandment? And then he goes into the verses. Jesus answered him, first of all, the commandments is hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the greatest commandment. And the second like it is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than this. Now with that statement, Jesus really sums up the Ten Commandments. Have no other gods before me is the first of all. It is also the one most of us don't think we ever break. A survey revealed that 76% of all Americans consider themselves completely faithful to the first commandment. Is it true? Have most Americans avoided placing another God in the place of the God of the Bible? Now, let's talk about that for a second. What other gods do we have in place before our God, before the true God? The God, the creator of the universe, who spoke life and light into existence, whose very fingertips pushed up the mountains of the earth, whose words and the breath of his life brought forth man and animals and water and plants and everything else in existence. If we look at our lives, most of us put other things before God. How many times have you thought you need to read your Bible, but sat down and watched TV instead or played on your phone? How many times you felt God calling you and tugging on your heart? Have the Holy Spirit, who dwells in you if you're a Christian, guide you to do something and you put it off? Or maybe don't do it quite the way God told you to. I'll tell you a story the other day. I was at the gas pump. And uh, I laid a few tracks down on top of the gas pump. Hoping somebody would see it. And a lady and her son pulled up to the pump behind me. Pumping gas. They were talking. And something fell upon my heart that said, Ask them if they go to church anywhere and invite them to yours. Simple. I chickened out because I thought I'm going to seem creepy. It's it's dark out. It's late outside. It's 1030 at night right now. You know, I'm on my way home. This lady's out here with her, her younger son, probably a young, young teenager. And I'm this big burly guy that's going to come over there in the dark at the gas station and start talking to him. I'm, I'm going to seem like I'm some creepy guy, you know. And so I use that to make me chicken out. That wasn't right. I put myself above God. I made myself a, a 
you know, little G God. I made myself a God above God in that moment. He was telling me to do something and I didn't do it. And honestly, father, I'm so sorry for that. I ask your forgiveness, father. But right now we have to think about our lives. This is up to you as individuals. I'm, this is for me, like everything else I talk about, this is for me as much as anybody else, because I am a sinner. And the only way I'm going to heaven is because Jesus died for me, because I can't get it right. But the reason that we do that is oftentimes society has a hold on us. All the new things. I, I harp on social media a lot because it, it takes time from us. You know, I've, I've gotten rid of all my social media accounts that I can think of. I maybe have a YouTube account still. Um, we do that because the world calls us away. The evil one tries to distract us. Anything can become a distraction. Jesus even said, you know, if, if paraphrasing what Christ said, you know, if you don't hate your your mother, your wife, your children, then you are not worthy of following me. Now he doesn't mean that literally, but it's a it's a metaphor for saying that he has to be first. Him and the Father must be first. If you're called to do something, do it. If God is pressing something upon your heart, if something's being impressed on your heart, follow it. Otherwise, what are we doing? We're putting other things before him and his word and his will and his mission. For example, and I'm sure y'all have heard this story, and I may have even said this story on here before, and I've told this quite a bit. There's a man who is praying, saying, God, what can I do? What can I do to help further the kingdom? What can I do to, to do what you want me to do to help evangelize or or reach the lost, or whatever it was he was praying. It was something of that nature, because I remember this being told when I was young. And God told him, go buy a gallon of milk. He went and bought a gallon of milk. He got in his car, and he said, all right, God, what now? And God moved him to this one certain house. And God said, I want you to take that gallon of milk, knock on the door, and give it to them. And he sat there for a while. He admitted he sat there for a while wondering, am I crazy? Is, is this ridiculous? You know, what's going on here? But he finally said, if this is what God wants, it's what I'm going to do. So he gets out of his vehicle. He takes a gallon of milk, knocks on the door, and a lady answers with some screaming, crying kids. And she had tears in her eyes. And he just said, hey, I was praying, and God told me to bring you this. And... Her and her husband were just ecstatic. The tears flowed even harder and said that they were praying for God to help them get some food, get some groceries, something for their children. And that little bit was, was help. You know, they were praying for help and God brought them some help. So don't think that the things that God wants you to do or that you might feel is being impressed upon you is, is something odd or different or something that's incorrect. Sometimes we might misread it and get it wrong. It's okay. You know, maybe I, maybe if I talked that late at the gas station, I would have seemed creepy. You know, but maybe her son would have heard that question and started wondering. Maybe he would have showed up at our church someday or maybe a church near him. 
Maybe someone on the gas pump on the other side would have heard me talking to them and started talking to me about it. And maybe they would have wanted to go to my church, get to know Christ. You don't know. It's like the story I know I've told the, before the missionary. He went to Africa and he, he lost his wife and he only, only one person received Christ. So he, he gave it up, denounced his faith and moved back to America. And later on, it turns out that, that one person he saved became a powerful force for God. And so many became saved because of him. But it all went back to that seed that that missionary had planted in that one person. Because God only needed him to go meet that one person, evangelize that one person. And a great force and a great spiritual awakening took place in that area. You don't know what God's plan is for you. Don't put yourself and your needs or your fears or your desires or your wants before what God wants in you. That's all I have to say for that. If you have any questions, let us know. Thank you. I'd like to uh, do a segment on a book that I'm currently listening to. I haven't actually finished it yet. Uh, however, um, it's it's good so far that I, I want to go ahead and do a review on it. The book is called Killing Christians. It's by Tom Doyle with uh, Craig Webster. Um, it's available at a lot of different locations, you know, Audible, uh, let me see here. Uh, looks like Christian Books has it, uh, Thrift Books, A Books, um, eBay. There's a lot of locations that has this book, and it's. I'm not seeing it for more than five bucks at most locations. There's one that has it for about twelve, but most others are five dollars or less. So this is a good, inexpensive book. I'm currently listening to it through a free, uh, free app called Libby. You can also get it on uh, audiobook, Audible.com, etc. Uh, in an audio form. But this is a great book. It's going into a lot of what happens to these Christians overseas. Um, you know, I know here, if you're in America like I am, we take for granted uh, how easy it is to be able to worship and read our Bible and share the gospel, etc. But when you're in other countries that are hostile to Christians or just religion in general, it becomes very difficult uh, to share the gospel, to learn about God, to learn about Christ. Uh, to have access to Bibles, etc. It's very difficult. And this book goes into that very well. Some of the struggles, it's it's individual stories, which I really like, you know, kind of similar to the DC Talk volumes of uh, uh, Voice of the Martyrs and Fox's Book of Martyrs, etc. So this is this is good, good material here. I can't recommend this enough. So um, again, there are some free resources to listen to it. There's a lot of places you can get this used or new for a really good price. Uh, so again, that really puts us high on my list of, of books uh, to get. Um, I think they do a really good job of breaking down the stories. Uh, in fact, it even opens up with a story about uh, Somalia and someone who was... A, I'm not going to get into it too much because I want to use some of these stories because um, some of these people are still active out there in the world. Uh, sharing Christ, but I want to use some of their stories of some of our unknown Christian soldier highlights we do on our on our episodes. So, um, but like a Somali pirate who became a Christian and is now just a great force for God over there. You know, helping to smuggle in Bibles, helping to share the word, helping to do a lot of things. And he even had a moment of of absolute tragedy that he bore perfect forgiveness for. I mean, it was it was amazing. Um, something that. I don't know if I could be as forgiving as him. Um, you know, I want to say with God working in me and through me that I could, but I don't know. Um, but uh, I was very impressed by spiritual maturity 
and by the way God is was working with him and through him. So again, good book. Um, again, it's called Killing Christians. Um, it's by Tom Doyle and uh, Greg Webster, and it's uh, Killing Christians, Living the Faith Where It's Not Safe to Believe. Um, check it out when you get a chance. It might be available at some of your local libraries too, so don't be afraid or hesitate to go check that out. You might be able to find it there. Uh, but um, I highly recommend this book, and I hope you check it out. All right, we're going to continue our scripture study in the book of Ephesians. Uh, today we're in chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, which is essentially the end of the chapter we picked up. I'm going to go ahead and read that at this time. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, hereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the one spirit to the Father. Excuse me, access by the one spirit to the Father. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Having been built to the foundations of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Now, one thing we have to remember about this book, Ephesians, is that it's primarily to who? The Gentiles. Now, I have with me a special guest, uh, one of my sons, Colton, here today. Uh, he's going to be discussing some of this with us. What are some of the things you see in this passage, Colton? Uh, well, it talks a lot about how Jesus is like the middle ground, uh, our connection to like God. And uh, when it talks about breaking down the barrier, you know, one of the things I noticed is like, it's basically meaning that Jesus is what we have to remember is the way to like glory and heaven with, and like being with God forever, basically. Okay. Um, now I have a, I have an NIV Bible that is the, uh, quote unquote, every man's Bible. Uh, now it has a little bit of a breakdown in this section and I think it does a really good job about talking about this passage also, but it, it specifically highlights, uh, verses 14 through 19, not necessarily the, the entire segment we're talking about, but uh, through Jesus Christ, the barrier between God and his sinful creatures have been removed. But Christ's work of reconciliation does not stop there. He can also remove the obstacles that alienate us from other people. In Christ, we can have both peace with God and with others. Some of us may feel that our relationships can never be salvaged, but realizing that Christ can give us the power to live at peace with others gives us new hope. 
while we are not guaranteed that others will seek to be reconciled with us, we can open, we can be open to the possibility and free ourselves from bitterness toward them. Um, Ephesians is a hard study. I mean, it's, there's a lot to digest, even though there's, there's only what six chapters in Ephesians, I believe there's a lot to digest in this, this particular section here. Um, Again, it starts off right here in verse 11. Therefore, remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh and called uncircumcision, who are called uncircumcision. Literally what the um, New King James says, uh, I would think they'll be uncircumcised, but they use the word uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands. Again, Gentiles back then traditionally weren't circumcised. Uh, However, um, being born again in Christ is referred to as a circumcision of the heart. Um, what other thoughts do you have on that, or on this in this particular section? Oh, I think at the beginning when it's talking about the circumcision and uncircumcised, I think it's talking about how, yeah, at one point we were all like far away from God, but we changed at some point in our lives, and it was by you know, maybe we like heard about it or learned about it, and it says, uh, in my Bible it says we, uh, Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. So, like, I think that means that basically, like, someone else is, like, changing you or trying to bring you to God, and there are people around you that are trying to help you. And we can also, and circumcision was originally, was Abraham, I believe, was the first one to begin circumcision. It was it was an early form of, of somewhat like baptism. It was a, a symbolic way of saying that you were uh, being bring yourself under God. Um, but again, that's a fleshly symbol. It's not a spiritual symbol like actual rebirth or actually gaining your salvation through Christ. Um, now, I like the way it goes on here and also talks about um, in verse 17, he came and preached peace to you who are afar and to those who are near. For through him, we both have access to one spirit, to the Father. Doesn't matter whether you're close or far. Of course, back then, a lot of it was viewed as either Jew or Gentile, but Christ came and changed a lot of that. Doesn't matter if you were far off or near, um, you know, just like when uh, the, the Ethiopian eunuch, you know, gained his salvation. Just like when these others were sent out to Africa and other locations to preach the gospel and to convert people, you know, it didn't matter if you were near or far. You know, through him, we both have access to one spirit to the father, by one spirit to the father. Um, do you have any other comments in the rest of the, the scripture in this passage? No. Okay. All right. Well, that's uh, pretty much it for this. Uh, next time, we'll be diving more into Ephesians when we do our next study. It'll be in chapter three. Uh, most likely what we're going to. Um, any last minute comments? No. All right. Thank you.